We did not read the whole chapter, we just read the first 10 verses. Because actually, the writer takes us to a very unfamiliar territory. Because in the end of the day, he is addressing an audience of a group of believers which he knows what he's talking about. He knows that they understand the Jewish perspective. And again, the argument that, that, that the writer of Hebrew gives here should not stop us to grasp what is the application for us as a 21st century disciples. What is happening in Hebrews chapter 7 is what is called a typology. So basically, it's a picture of the Old Testament that is foreshadowing. It's giving input to something that we are going to discover in the New Testament. So, if you remember the story of Moses in Exodus, where people have been really uh, wicked, and Moses comes with that pole, the serpent, and whoever looks at the serpent is going to be healed. The same story Jesus tells to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So in one sense, this kind of story is that kind of typology that brings you, takes you to a New Testament experience. And what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 7 is exactly that. It's taking an Old Testament story and it's bringing it for us to understand better who Jesus is. And how is this Old Testament story being understood today? For example, if you also remember the story of the Passover, the sacrificial system, what they had to do. But with the story of the Passover, they needed to have a lamb that was without defect. And then we've got the same thing that Jesus is being called from John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. And that's how the scriptures works. And what we've got in Hebrews 7 is that kind of typology of something that has happened in the Old Testament that is going to bring us, point to Jesus, so we can understand him better. So we've got a type of the Old Testament which finds the antitype in the work and in the life of Jesus. And that's what we've got with this strange character called Melchizedek. There's only four mentions of Melchizedek in the scriptures. Genesis 14, as from the store. Psalm verse 4. And then the book of Hebrews mentions and um, several times. So it's interesting how in the canon this character, this mysterious character appears. He appears to Abraham 
which we'll stop and, and ponder a little bit that story soon. And then David, perhaps a thousand years later, mentions him. And then the writer of Hebrews then, a thousand years later, mentions him. And this, this is one of the things why I find scripture so amazing. Because it shows that the scripture is truthful. Because how would David or whoever wrote that psalm, how would the writer of Hebrews know about Melchizedek if it wasn't one main author of the scriptures? That's why Paul says to Timothy, the whole scriptures is God's breathed. So it brings us to that place that this actually, it's an internal proof of the truthfulness of the authorship of the Bible. I love it. I love it. Melchizedek. The background we find in Genesis 14. We've got Abraham, who's, bought, who's got this calling God to go and live his homeland and go to a place God had called him. And on the way there, we see the story of Abraham developing. His, his tribe developing. And we come uh, in, in chapter 12 when there is this covenant that God makes. And as you have read this week, there is this, this engagement with, with his nephew. I, I said on the, on the video that we've seen a different side of Abraham. We've seen uncle Abraham here showing goodness and mercy to his nephew. And then they had to part ways because the shepherds were fighting over where should the sheep, where should the flock having food. And Abraham chose his generosity and kindness to his nephew. Nephew Lot picks up the best spot. Abraham looks to God and God leads him to another piece of land. Until trouble comes again. And you, the cohort of a king, uh, uh, and if we understand chapter 14 properly, it's, it's one of this kind of uh, a leading king with some sub-kings, and he's organizing. And they've been with him for some years, and now they're fed up with him. And therefore, they decide to go against the king. And the reality here is that actually part of this fight and part of these battles is that Lot, Abraham's nephew, is, happens to be in the middle of these battles. Abraham hears the story. He takes 318 men and goes to the rescue of Lot. And as he wins the battle, returns. 
And upon his return, there are two kings that meet with Abraham. One of them was the king of Sodom, and the other one was the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And this is the story that the, the, the author of Genesis wants us to ponder a little bit, because there is very, something very special about Melchizedek for Moses, so for Abraham, sorry. Abraham is welcomed with bread and wine. Abraham is blessed. Abraham responds to this by giving the tithing of everything that he possessed to acknowledge what Melchizedek has done for him. Isn't it interesting that is Melchizedek who blesses Abraham and not the other way around? The blessing comes from the greater to the lesser. This is the Jewish way of things. The father blesses his children. The grandfather blesses the, the next generation. And what we've got here is totally the, the other way around. That's why Jesus is offensive to, to the Jewish people when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Because in the end of the day, there is nothing greater than Father Abraham. There's nothing more superior. And then Jesus says, no, no, before he was, I am. So, so I'm before him. This, this parting of the blessing. But if you look at Genesis 14, have a look at what, who was this? Melchizedek. King of Salem, king of peace. He was king of righteousness. He was a priest of El Elyon, the most high God. You see that in chapter 14 of Genesis. You see that in verse 4 of Hebrews 7. Priest that Abraham gave him one-tenth of the plunder. The writer of Hebrews carries on with the rationale, actually, uh, to the point that this has worked out even with the Levites, with the Levites, to provide that, that, that thinking that actually Melchizedek was greater than those Levi priests. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And chapter 7 says that there is no record of un What's the context here in order to become a levitical priest in the old testament you needed to show proof of the right lineage you needed to show proof that you descended from the priestly line 
If you were to look at this in detail, go to Ezra chapter 2. The, when the, all the people of God gather together, the priests come together, but because they couldn't prove their lineage, these priests get defrocked. That's how serious it was. You had to be certified that you'd come from Aaron. So one fascinating thing about Melchizedek is that chapter 7, but also chapter 14, says that there is no record of ancestors here. And also the other thing that is very interesting is that there is no time bound for this priest, Melchizedek. When actually, if you were a priest in the Levitical system, you were appointed at the age of 25 and retired at the age of 50. Eight more years left for me. <laughs> and we haven't got that description for Melchizedek. Because actually, the that we've got for him is that he is a priest that remains forever resembling like the son of God so what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here and what we've read in, in, in Genesis 14 is that the priesthood in which you have come in the Lord Jesus it's much more significant than the Levitical and ironic priesthood this is a typology this is pointing us pointing us to Jesus application number one this passage of chapter 7 is interrupted by chapter 6 of Hebrews because he starts talking about Melchizedek in chapter 5. Application number 1. The reason why the writer of Hebrews is doing this is because he is trying to encourage and warn the believers about their walk with the Holy Spirit. To continue to partake in what the Holy Spirit has got new community of faith. It's this warning and this encouragement is still up to date for us today. Look at what it says in verse 18, 19 and onwards. It's, it's, it's this opportunity that we have to participate with what the Holy Spirit. And we know what happens when the church of God does not cooperate with the Spirit of God. It's not a wake-up call. It's just warning and, and that, that blessing and encouragement to say, come on, guys, take on, get on board with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And this is what we're trying to do with Restore, just to encourage each and every one of us to pay attention to what God's Spirit has got for us as individuals, of, of, as disciples, but also corporately. 
There is an invitation here to draw near to God, to continue to trust in God. And whatever the version that we hear out there about what, what does it look like to draw near to God, we know from the writer of Hebrews that there is only one way to draw near to God. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Application number two. Continue to immerse yourself in the work of Christ. Jesus was this priestly king or priest king. Melchizedek was this priest king. According to the Old Testament laws, priests were not to have duties of the kings, and nor kings were to have duties of priests. Remember what happened to Paul to Saul when he rushed into the sacrifice and not waiting for Samuel? His law, his royal whatever. He lost his, his power, he lost everything. And when we immense, when we immense ourselves in the Holy Spirit and in the work of Christ, we come to that place that what God says for the church in First Peter two nine is true. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So not only we've got this priest who is Jesus, who is the high priest, and he's far superior than Melchizedek, but actually, we've got this inheritance and his, as his church to be this royal priesthood. What does it look for us in the 21st century? What does it look for us as cans? Well, personally, I believe that we need to get back as a church of God into the prophetic into speaking life into our communities, into speaking truth, into pointing people to the life-giving Jesus. What does it mean to be royal priesthood in the 21st century here in Bristol, apart from the prophetic? It's continuing to share the love and the mercy and the kindness that we have found in Jesus ourselves. What does it mean, apart from the prophetic and the sharing, we're continuing to declare the praises of him who has called you? Prophetic? Proclaiming the good news? And continuing to worship.
This is what a royal priesthood looks like. And we need one another to do that, Cairns wrote. We need the Holy Spirit to fall afresh on us in order for us to continue to speak truth and life, to continue to share the good news, to continue to proclaim God's praises. Because I think that is the task of the church. We're going to respond in that, and we're going to respond in that by participating in the communion table. And if you remember from chapter 14 of Genesis, Melchizedek greets Abraham with bread and wine. Interesting. Oh, maybe that's another typology. when actually he knows that Christ, well, at the table, we know that Christ is the king of our righteousness and the king of our peace. So we come to the table today being invited from Jesus, who is superior to Melchizedek. He's a high priest. Hebrews 27, 24 to 25. It talks a little bit about him being the perfect priest. But, sorry. This is a priest that lives forever. Because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. There is no more need for continual sacrifice. And therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. This is our king. So I'm going to give an opportunity for us to be thinking a little bit and reflecting on what God has challenged us from his words, but also reflect on what we've been doing this week. And if there is anything that we need to confess, ask for forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and enjoy the invitation of our King of righteousness and peace. So we're going to take a moment um, to, to do that. And then Jenny and the band are going to, to lead us into some uh, background worship, and then um, some people are going to come and serve this um, to you. I think it's going to be Eileen and Anna who are going to come and serve this. But let's, let's commit our hearts to God. When I find it's the time, then I'll pray, and then we'll come and serve you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king of righteousness, our king of peace. And we thank you that you showed this through the love for us. Thank you that your body was broken for us at the cross.
Thank you that your blood was shed for us at the cross. And as we remember you by these two symbols, Lord, we are so grateful that in you we find righteousness, we find peace, we find forgiveness, we find freedom, and we find strength, Lord, to live a life that is worthy of your name. Thank you for your mercy that is new every day in our lives. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.